Hi, I'm Jeffrey Allen Schechter, and welcome to Writer's Room Pros, a podcast of conversations with TV and film professionals where we talk about not just their work, but their approach to finding, developing, and ultimately telling stories for a living. On this episode, we welcome writer and producer Alvaro Rodriguez. In our conversation, Alvaro and I discuss using emotional experiences to guide storytelling, the environmental shift in attitudes in writer's rooms, and much more. And now, Alvaro. Alvaro. Jeffrey. Para este podcast, solamente hablamos en español. Okay. You're going to be doing that only, mostly on your own. Oh, I need to practice my Spanish. <laughs> when I was in uh, an undergrad, mm-hmm. uh, I took the the whatever the placement test and i tested out of 16 hours of college spanish so i never had to take it at the college level <laughs> they didn't I actually like they I, actually talk to you in spanish at all and say can you actually understand well you know it's one of those tests where it was like i was in a massive auditorium right. and it was like there was you know it's there's a written part and then there's an audio part and the audio part is being played over loudspeakers and they're only coming out of one side of the room and it's like <laughs> and it's like Somehow I managed to test out of 16 hours of Spanish on this test. And so I felt like I didn't get to, you know, I didn't get to cultivate it very much. So I can read it very well. And oh, I really? And I can speak it okay. But, you know, it's just like, it, it's not automatic. It doesn't right. like instantly turn on. Now, okay. if I'm at a restaurant and I'm ordering food, then it's easier. <laughs> right. Yeah. But I just like, I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't, it's not a, it's not a muscle I get to exercise. Right. Much. No, my, my favorite thing is speaking the very, very little Spanish that I do. And then people yeah. get all excited and speak to me in Spanish. I'm like, no comprendo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. That, that's me. Anyway, but um, yeah, but interestingly, right, so I, I think we've established now I speak more Spanish than you, yet you're working on an Israeli TV show. <laughs> Impossibly. So can you explain, how, how is it that I wrote, you know, I was one of the writers on I'll Be Home for Christmas, and you're somehow <laughs> working in Israel <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know who did. Well, I guess this is just payback. I did cultural appropriation first. Is that how? Is that how you're <laughs> yes. playing this? Wow, yeah. you're vindictive. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you know, it. There's, um, it's a global market these days, and right. so you have to diversify, and you have to, uh, you know, look for opportunities where you can, you know, find them. Right. And it's just like an opportunity opened, and hopefully, is opening other opportunities and other doors over there. So. Right. About that. That's cool. And, and can you talk about the show at all? Um, so uh, this is very early stages, but I was developing a project with a company called Abad Hameri. Mm-hmm. Um, they're under a part of Fremantle Media. Okay. And um, with um, writing producer partners, Michael Ohlone, who's a uh, well, very well-known actor, mm-hmm. especially in Israel, star of uh, Shtisel. It was a big hit here globally. Shocking Netflix. big hit. Shocking big hit. Very yeah. shocking big hit. An incredible person, great actor, and Michael Mayer, who um, is here from uh, lives here in Los Angeles, but is originally from Haifa, and um, he and Michael Aloni had worked together a couple of times on Michael's films, Michael Michael, uh, Out in the Dark, and then a film that he did about a year ago called Happy Times, mm-hmm. and um, and I came on board a project that they were developing with uh, with Abu Hameri um, that was kind of a, a period. Um, espionage thriller kind of story that I think is really, really, really cool. And we kind of developed it out and had some meetings about it. And it's kind of opened up other opportunities for um, some different projects that, that, uh, that we were developing. And so... Like also in Israel? Oh, yeah, also in Israel. So, yeah, I mean, one of the projects mm-hmm. um, that hopefully we're, I'm, I'm about to head out to Tel Aviv in um, a couple of weeks uh, to take some meetings on, um, you know, this is all very preliminary, but it's a project that I had developed initially as a feature many years ago and then um, kind of came back to it, tried to reconfigure it as a pilot. Um, but with just even the, the concept of like, oh, what if this were set in Tel Aviv? What if this were set mm-hmm. in Israel? Just like open up the floodgates and kind of a lot of new ideas came about. And, and so... Um, I'm excited about the possibilities of exploring that. And it sounds amazing. Have you ever asked um, Michael Loney, like, to what do they attribute the success of Shtisel, like, outside of Israel? And, and uh, just as a little backup, like, for people who've, you know, maybe don't know Shtisel, I, I don't know if it's still streaming on Netflix. It was for I, I a while. I believe so, but it I'm might not be. sure. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. But anyway, it's, it's, it's really, it's a kind of two or three seasons of a ultra-Orthodox Jewish family living in, I think, B'nai Brak or Jerusalem right. in Israel. And it like made for, you know, three cents, 
per episode. And the I think the first shocker for everybody was that the non-religious, well, first of all, the religious in Israel don't own televisions. So you're already going, right. I, you know, it's like, yeah, I think I'm willing to, I don't know, you know, you know, put out, you know, give singing lessons to the tone deaf. You know, it's like, so, so right. they clearly weren't making it for the ultra-religious audience, but there's a lot of sort of modern Orthodox also in Israel, right. so maybe they're, they're doing that. But it was, the, it was the secular Israelis who generally, you know, not to get into the politics of the religious and right. the secular in Israel, but it's, it's a bit of a kind of a frenemy kind of situation uh, going on there. Yeah. The fact that they embraced it so much, and Shtisel is this odd thing that it's not, it's not, it's not more critical of the ultra-Orthodox than it is of anybody, and it's, and it's not an unfair representation of, of the community. So it's like, you know, there's a lot of shows that will come out, you know, that deals with the ultra-Orthodox, and it's all generally often very negative. Right. right? This was not negative. This was just, no, this is, we, they're people with problems just like the rest of us. So somehow that caught on in Israel. So, right. but as Michael Aloni ever said, well, yeah, okay, I kind of get it because we live there. Why did it catch on in America and, and in other countries? You know, I don't know. We, we, you know, we've talked about it a little bit, um, but I, you know, I think it goes back to what you just said. It's like, a, you know, these are people with problems like everybody else. Mm -hmm. And there's an element of that that I think is very powerful. I remember having this conversation with Alison Anders once where she was talking about Me Viva Loca, the film that she made here about East L.A. homegirls in mm -hmm. the 90s, you know, and how she had gone to some Indian reservation somewhere in the Southwest and was told, like, every household here has a VHS copy of Me Viva Loca. And it was surprising to her. And it's like, how, you know, how is that, how does this cross over to something where these people have you know, this community may not have anything directly in common, but but it's like that you shows and when you're, you know, doing these creative things and you're doing them in a way that is, um, you know, that expresses empathy, that expresses like it's not it's not uh, uh, putting people in boxes. It's actually kind of like exploring the universal truths about our human existence. Mm -hmm then that crosses over. And then the more specific it is in that cultural context, the more universal it feels. You know, when I um, did uh, this animated series that I was co-creator of for Netflix, Seis Manos, in that first meeting with Netflix, they were like, you know, don't try to appeal to like, how are we going to get this demographic or that demographic? Mm -hmm. And what can we put in here to, you know, to find a 15-year-old, you know, boys from Peoria or whatever the thing is, right? <laughs> the target like, demographic, 15-year-old boys in yeah, Peoria. 15-year-old boys in Peoria. Well, you know, the Netflix algorithm, I'm sure. Right. But they were like, you know, the more specific it is to the, to itself, the more universal it will be. Right. And it's like, I think that's good advice. And, right. and I think that's, you know, when you find something that... Um, that people just relate to, even though there is a mm -hmm. difference in the sort of uh, veneer, the sort of, you know, cultural um, text, the subtext is all, you right. know, the panoply of human experience and emotion. And, and it, it also goes back to the thing of like, as a younger writer, I used to always rankle at the idea when people would say, you know, write what you know. You know, I had a, a friend of mine that's a very, was a very successful novelist, and I guess it still is. And uh, he was teaching writing, and he said, you know, you're from Wyoming, not to me, but he was talking about a student. He's like, you're from Wyoming, write me a Wyoming story. And I always thought, like, write what you know. I, I mean, it's like, what do I know? I don't know anything. I've got to invent stuff. But then I realized, like, write what you know means write what you know emotionally. Right, you know? I was going to say, it's code for write what you feel. Write what you feel, exactly, yeah. very much so. And it's like, you know, everybody knows what it's like to, you know, be rejected. Everybody knows what it's like to lose <laughs> not a me, baby. One. Well, the rest of us, yeah, okay. you know. Um, and so there's something where it's like, you know, tapping into that makes it, that's the thing that people connect with. And, mm -hmm. and all this other detail is what gives it that verisimilitude, that, you know, that feeling like, oh, this is true. There's truth in this. Even though it's alien to my physical experience, it's not to my emotional experience. Right. Yeah, that, and, and right what you know was, uh, was, actually good advice I was given by my manager oh my god 30 years ago yeah. I mean, that's how long I've been with my manager um, because it was like the, I think the first script I wrote was like some like slasher horror thing right that almost got made you know it was kind of the, the proverbial everything was almost got made um, 
but um, but maybe the third or fourth one was you know I was just kind of doing you know I don't want to say grindhouse stuff, but you know it was kind of like in that sort of zone. Yeah. And um, and then uh, he said, look, you know, the writing is fine, but why don't you write something that you know, meaning you know, feel emotionally. Yeah. So I wrote I wrote a piece called Dear Mr. Turner, which was uh, about a young man who has to go to the upstate New York where his grandfather has kind of gone off the grid because I was very close to my grandfather who bought a house in upstate New York. He didn't go off the grid, but, um, but you know, I kind of spun that my relationship with my grandfather, who I, I adored, into the story about the adored grandfather who seems like he, either he's crazy or he's brilliant now, and we can't figure it out. Yeah. So um, 16 years later, it got made as a Hallmark Channel movie, but it's, uh, that was the, the thing that you know, got, me, uh, got me my, uh, my uh, agent, you know, got, you know, my, made my manager like, yeah, we should produce this. So they tried producing, you know, so yeah, yeah I can't, I can't argue with that. No, it's, and it, it is good advice. Yeah. You know, there, there's a lot to that. And, um, uh, yeah, it's, I think it's served me well over the years to right. go back to that idea of just right. like, right, what you feel. Right. Well, and if you feel vampires biting your neck, we have from dusk till dawn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even that, that's like, to me, one of the fun things about doing something like that is, like you said, it's kind of grindhousey and all that other stuff. But years ago, I saw this documentary that Martin Scorsese did called The Journey Through American Cinema. And he has this whole section in there about the director is smuggler mm-hmm. and how you all these filmmakers, these auteurs like Orson Welles or whoever would, you know, smuggle so much of themselves into the story or so, smuggle things that they were they, they cared about and and um, into a story that, you know, might otherwise n- not have had those elements, you know, smuggling the personal. And so there's a lot of smuggled stuff and the possibilities in doing right. a story about, you know, vampires and you know, south of the border stuff. And, you know, for example, one of the things I was really intrigued by, and I, I think this is um, this is the first season of the series, we had a new character that's not in the film. Obviously, the, the show is based on a film that um, Quentin Tarantino wrote and Robert Rodriguez directed, and um, starred George Clooney and kind of really kind of helped kick off his um, film career and all that mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, but we had in developing the TV series, you're now trying to turn this, you know, 100 minute movie into 10 episodes of TV and then more. Right. Right. So, you know, obviously it's something where you're blowing out the world and you're expanding things. And so we created this new character, um, um, a Texas Ranger who's who's half Mexican. And in the history of the Texas Rangers, there's a lot of like, you know, violence towards Mexicans and towards Mexican-Americans. I mean, it's a pretty bloody history that goes mm-hmm. back decades and decades. And so I was very interested about the idea of, like, you know, someone who is of that, you know, background, take, you know, putting on a badge and, and acting in, you know, in that, for lack of a better word, in that costume. Right. And there's a scene where well, were they antagonistic towards like the the Mexican characters or Mexican Americans? No, or? you know, and and he's he's sort of he has a mentor character who in the film was played by Michael Parks and in the show was played by Don Johnson, um, Texas Ranger Earl McGraw, who mm-hmm. shows up in a few other of Quentin's uh, movies. Um, and so, but there's something very it's like the uh, in, in the first episode smuggled in this whole thing where he's trying to ask Earl to to uh, baptize his kid. You know, and and that's kind of a little bit of a of a thing. But then, you know, so kind of leaning into some of the, like the elements of like you know um, Catholicism in the you know Mexican American community, community or at least religion, and and the importance of family and things like that, and how you know this mentor character is telling him, you have to be you know you have one uh, responsibility, and it's to this job more than that. But there's this sequence where, by the time the Gecko brothers, uh, who are in the show, are played by DJ Gatrona and Zane Holtz, two really fun and and uh, great actors to work with, uh, they're on the run uh, after having robbed a bank, and they're trying to get across the border to Mexico. And this um, Texas Ranger, Freddie, is is after them. By the time he gets to the border, he's kind of like run afoul of his own. Uh, keepers or whatever, you know, of his own bosses. And so when he gets to the border, he cannot cross at the regular border crossing. He's already kind of a little bit of a wanted man. 
And so he strips and down to his underwear and crosses the river holding his uniform going across the border to the other side. And I loved that image. I had this image in my head. I, said, I don't know exactly what it means, but there's something about subverting the idea of mm -hmm. like you always see, you know, the immigrant coming across to the Texas side of the border, across the river, you know, in their underwear, holding their clothes up inside. And there was just something interesting to me about like that liminal space of stripping down to nothing and crossing over. And then when, you know, when he gets to the other side, kind of the camera pans down and we see that he's left his ranger badge on mm -hmm. the Texas side of the border. And it's right. like, this is a new thing. This is like, I'm all bets are off kind of thing. And so, you know, all of these elements, you know, I think are... Right. Just as well, that's a classic like rebirth kind of it's metaphor. Classic, yeah, yeah through water, you come out, you're a different person. Absolutely, one hundred percent. And yeah. so that's kind of stuff that's like, as much as the mythology and the vampire stuff and all of that interests me, I always like thinking about right story in that way too, and opportunities that doing something, you know, that um, some people might dismiss and maybe rightly so as you know right. schlocky, you know, whatever, but. You smuggle, and you I love know. that term. I hadn't heard that, you know, that idea. You smuggle yourself with it. Yeah, it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice uh, metaphor. Yeah, I mean, it's like I think it's uh, it's kind of it's been. Uh, I think that may have been the introduction to me for that idea of smuggling, and it's like okay, that's that's what you do. That's mm -hmm. what you do as a writer, you know, um, because you know, there's something that. Um, Otherwise, everything is going to, you know, it, it's too, it's too nakedly personal. Otherwise, you've got to smuggle it in, you know. Right. This show is brought to you by Showrunner Industries, makers of Writers Room Pro. For more about the app and this show, make sure to check us out at writersroompro.com and follow us on Instagram at writersroompro. Now, back to the show. Is story structure evolving, mm -hmm. or? Is it, um, or is it, are there some like immutable truths about story structure that just will never change? I, the, the way I started thinking about it was because like you're a, you're a uh, big proponent of uh, Blake Snyder's Save the Cat. I have my own version of it, which, you know, has certain similarities because there's overlap in sure. story structure. But both of those, those books, Blake's book is now... 14, 15 years old. Mine is uh, 11 years old. And I haven't really revisited it. I've been like, kind of too busy working and doing stuff. So I haven't really revisited a lot of the ideas in there. And I'm just wondering, in your experience, like, are you, you, know, are you looking at stories being told now like, oh, they're kind of doing things differently? You know? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that has shifted, in just at least in the in the consciousness of, you know, the media devouring public and also the media devouring media is that we've kind of shifted from, you know, the, for lack of a, uh, you know, for, for better or worse, from movies to TV. Mm -hmm. And so all of that structure gets stretched out over a longer period of time. And sometimes, you know, it's harder to, to see it in the same way, you know, um, but, you know, and then you can take things and break them down season by season or episode by episode, and then you 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 see the structure, but it's it's like it's just the structure within the bigger structure. And and when you we went to movies before, you often didn't have to do that. You know, it was like beginning, middle, and end, and you know, um, orphan, wanderer, warrior, martyr kind of stuff. And um, and I and and so I I think that yeah, that's I used used to always describe it when you know whenever people would. Um, kind of um, denigrate things like structure or beats or whatever. It's like, you know, some people say this, this is a cliche, and I say, no, it's a universal truth, you know. Um, mm. there, there, it's an immutable truth. There's immutable truths about story structure. You know, our brains are kind of hardwired to look for beginnings, middle, and ends, you know. And, um, and I guess to paraphrase, um, I think it's Godard, not necessarily in that order. Um, but you know, but you want you you you're you're trying to find a character that you can identify with. You're trying to find you're trying to find them on their journey. You're trying to um, you know experience their story vicariously through that experience. And and you know, there's a lot of structure that that I think is essential. 
um, to exploiting that cathartic experience for the reader, the audience, you know, for yourself as a writer, mm-hmm. for the people that are performing this, and everything. So, yeah, I mean, ha- is it shifting? Possibly, but, you know, I think one of the things about all this, you know, it all kind of goes back, at least in terms of, um, you know, the person who first sort of, like, gave this all names, it's Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. you know, and he would say, like, Look at all these examples right. from all these cultures. Yeah, the mythic round and the yeah. hero's journey. Centuries and, and dec and millennia ago. Right. And we keep sort of retelling these same sort of stories, and there's a structure to those stories. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know that it's necessarily changing as much as, you know, we're just finding variations on the theme. You yeah. Know? Because I, I know you've worked a lot with Quentin Tarantino, and, you know, and his, he's, deceptively a, a strong structuralist even though his oh, yeah. movies jump all over the place but they it, it's it's that's that's the brilliance of like understanding story structure and they know okay i know how to get i know i know i need to be here you know like you know death and resurrection or you know you, you know you know whatever you know, switch over from you know uh, wanderer to warrior i know yeah. I, I know i got to get there how do i how do i smuggle it into the audience so that they don't they don't see it. It's like editing, right? Yeah. They say like if, if when you you know that it's something's been you know really well cut, when you don't notice the edits, right? Right. So same thing when you don't notice the structure, and then when something falls apart, it, it's like the structure is hitting over the head. It's like right. whoa, whoa, no, that doesn't go there. It's like exposition, you know, and it's just is too direct, and it tells you exactly, you know, that's the thing that you know often I rankle against when you have a scene where the character says, all right, this is what we're going to do. And they lay it all out and then they go do exactly that <laughs> right. thing. You know, yeah. it's like, well, one of these didn't have to be there. Right. Either tell us this is a plan and then everything goes to hell or don't tell us a plan and let it unfold for us right. as it's happening. And right. you know, all of that kind of stuff. Favorite line of dialogue. Come, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't you just go? <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, so I don't, you know, I don't. I don't know that structure is is really changing that much. I just think that sort of possibly the ways we think about it, or you know, when you see something that's really well done, and like you said, it's like the cuts are seamless, right? And you don't see um, you don't see the the, the needlework, you yeah. know, and it's just like wow, that's just an amazing piece of material, it's, yeah. And it's in it, and and uh, but you feel I think you feel it on a subconscious or unconscious level yeah no there's a there's actually I, I had the chance to talk to a neurophysicist I, I, I don't even ask, no, I can't tell you what a neurophysicist actually does but I did speak to a neurophysicist uh, and we're talking about storytelling and um, sort of how the brain works with story and spatial relationship yep. you know to storytelling it was fascinating stuff but one, one of the points that he brought out was this idea that we are actually, we have a biological imperative for storytelling because, you know, going back, you know, however many thousands of years, um, the, the groups of people who got together and said, okay, we're gonna, we are now forming a group, the ones that told better stories to each other survived at a higher rate than the, the ones that, well, you believe this and I believe this, we don't have a common origin story, there's no flow, we don't know where our people are going, you know, that, yeah. right? So, so there's this weird biological imperative we have for good storytelling. And that's kind of now, you know, it's, it's gone from, God, I hope we survive the night to, oh, gee, I really enjoyed the Batman, <laughs> you know, which right. I did really enjoy the Batman. Yeah. Um, so, it, but it was fascinating that this idea that we can't, we can't fight the urge to try to tell good stories and we can't fight the urge to reject stories that are poorly told. Right. It's just, it's, it's like you said, it's, it's the hardwiring. It is. It's hardwiring and, and, you know, that there's... Um that's what community is built on like right. you said that there's there's something that that creates an identity a cultural identity you know um and uh a, even a, um that communities that sense of community is like oh we have a shared origin story we have a shared experience we have the same uh touchstones and things like that mm-hmm. yeah. so i think that's that's you know that's essential essentially important. I think it's really interesting now, um, you know, for the first time in such a long time that, you know, that it seems at least that there's more interest in hearing more diverse stories mm-hmm. um, and and um, and having those stories be told by diverse storytellers. Well, and this goes back in a way to our 
you know, our chat about Stissel, yeah. which is that, you know, you cannot, I mean, look, I'm Jewish and I have trouble relating to ultra-Orthodox, yeah. you know, like, you know, in, in that world where, you know, they, they don't speak, there's no English, it's, it's Hebrew and Yiddish and mm. mostly Yiddish, right? That it's, you know, that, um, like for me, and, and I have a sort of a cultural connection to that, I have trouble relating to it. The fact that Stissel has attracted so many people like around the world speaks to the power of storytelling yeah. that, that you, you, you see yourself. That's, well, that's Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Right. 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 And I think there's also something too, there's mm -hmm. like, because it has been traditionally, you know, it's a very traditional society, sort of hermetic mm -hmm. and, 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 um, and, and kind of closed off, you know, from the rest of, uh, you know, what we would say is like, you know, ex uh, expressions of that that we would have seen in the media. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, we're getting to see behind the curtain and seeing something that we haven't, you know, we don't necessarily uh, have a lot of experience with. And there's something that's kind of unique and interesting and, and even like, you know, like transgressive or forbidden about, you know, seeing that kind of thing that traditionally would not have been seen by a mass audience before. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's also, you know, lends itself to... Mm -hmm storytelling and yeah. the idea of you know why you're attracted to that thanks to writers room pro um i've had the opportunity to talk to literally over the last two years hundreds of writers yeah. dozens of showrunners and and it's just it's an interesting mix of uh i mean I, i'll literally like one of the things and again this is not the, yeah this is writers room pros podcast and it's kind of soft advertising for writers room pro sure. but it's really more i just just love the opportunity to talk to people about stuff like this. Um, so this, I'm not really trying to you know, push writers from pro any harder than I need to. The, well, um, the last two shows I've been on, we, we've used it, and I've used it for my own project. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Again, and that was Alvaro Rodriguez. Yeah. Um, the um, if it's good enough for Alvaro, who does not speak Spanish, it's good <laughs> enough for you. <laughs> And one of the things you can do when you set up a TV show in Writers Room Pro, as you well know, as being our favorite client, um, is you set up the what structure? You know, teaser and four acts, no teaser, and you know, four acts and a tag. You know, it's like you yeah. you, can, you choose it, and and not infrequently we'll talk to somebody and say, oh, you know, we don't we don't do acts, and I'm going, oh yeah, well, no, I don't. I, yeah, I know you're a cable show. It's not like you know, you know, you know, cut to you know, you know, you know, cut to act break. You know, yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about your good old fashioned story structure. It says no, no, no. We still we don't have it. It's just it's one story. Can we set it up for one act? Yeah. And and yeah, you can. But it's like, you, you know, it's like whatever happened to a beginning, middle, end. It should be at least three acts. You know what I mean? It's. Yeah. It, you know, so it's it's endlessly fascinating to me you know, how people and they're great writers. Yeah. They just. They're the, oh, there's a flood, I've got to help. You know what I mean? It's like, right. yeah, there's, you know, that's, I, you know, I wish I was that person in a I way. Mean, that's, a, that's the thing, I think. People get used to, the, to, to, to that sort of, you know, I guess I call it like pantsing it, you know, just like off, see your pants or whatever. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and it's like, but no, you can be a cable show and not have commercial breaks and therefore not need act breaks, but put them in your structure and then just take them out when you write the script. You know, take out the act two part. You, you know, don't have to tell me. To, yeah, you don't have, yeah. And so, but, it, but it's, it's, it's like this is a tool for you as a writer right. just to help you compartmentalize and like know that, oh, there has to be a turn mm -hmm. about this time in the story. And so what's that way that even though not cutting to a commercial, you want the audience to be like... <gasps> Right. And then come back after the commercial, even though there's no commercial. But it's just for you as yeah. a writer or just creator or a showrunner or whatever. And um, it's a little something I invented called storytelling. Yeah, it's a little yeah, it's a little, <laughs> a little trick. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that's the thing too. Uh, that there's something to me that um, you know when you're putting together a writer's room. Uh, and I've been someone who's, you know, mostly been on the side of like not putting together the room, but being part of the room that's put together. Yeah. Um, and then you realize like, oh, everyone here kind of has a different perspective, brings their own, you know, thing. It's like um, they might not be, they might be great at bringing ideas to the table, but then they're slower at other things. And then they might be terrible at bringing ideas to the table, but then they can write a script really fast and it's going to be really good mm -hmm. and whatever, whatever. Um, yeah, I got into trouble once in a, in a writer's room where I was like a, I was like the number two in the room. Yeah, and I asked everybody because you know I was kind of coming in 
to like a, a later season. I wasn't there on yeah. any of the earlier seasons. And I said, oh, so like, what's everybody's like writing superpower? I wanted to hear from everybody. Like, what did you think your your own personal skill set was like? Yeah. I wanted to hear. I expected to hear that. Oh, I'm really good with ideas. You know, I'm not. I'm a little weaker on dialogue. I'm really good at writing. You know, women's dialogue. You know, it's you know, whatever. And um, yeah, and everybody got very very upset about this idea that like there's some there's some that there 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 might be some shortcoming that they might have that you know that they would have to kind of bring out into the open it was it was a very interesting kind of experience it but is, it's the yeah. idea is just because then you know you, you you know you can't tame the beast till you cage the beast you know in a yeah. way right you have to know what your limitations are as a writer or what do i need oh, to yeah. work on absolutely 100% right and i think that's you know that's always uh, i think always been part of my sort of mission statement is like hey I want to be able to come to you in all honesty about whatever mm -hmm. thing might be bothering me or whatever, because I want you to come the same way to me if something is bothering you. I don't need to be, um, you know, told everything is wonderful when if it's not, you know, and it's like I want to bring my best ideas to the table so that you can rip them apart. Because uh, when you bring your best ideas, I want to also be able to write right. them apart because together we're going to build a better monster. You know, there's something about this is the contract we have with each other. If we can't be honest with each other and challenge each other, then what are we doing here? You know, right. Um, but have, have you have you seen that changing because of the I mean, you know, the the prevalence of the trip, you know, the trips to HR that people get because, you know, it's like it, the writer's room for sure has shifted in the last, let's call it four Four years, five years, yeah. where it's this. It never used to be an eggshell experience. Now it's like I know so many you know showrunners, writers who are just terrified of yeah. actually having that contract and saying, "Look, you could tell me anything." You know, you, I mean, you know, I'd prefer you don't tell me. Like, you know, I'm short. You know, yeah, yeah. You know, I, like you don't get personal, right? But you could tell me anything about my writing, and let's talk about it. Right, but it's it's like I, you know, when you when you're now living in a world where if I say, yeah, I really didn't like that script, and and you can turn around and if you're that person, go, you know, it made me feel very uh, un, you know, unappreciated, you know, when you said that, yeah. and and that becomes like a you know a note from HR, hey, make sure you express your appreciation that, you know, you just you just shut up, everyone just you know goes to their room and does their own thing. I yeah, mean, I guess, you know, I think I, I've seen, I've seen certain instances of that. And, um, but, you know, I guess, you know, maybe I'm due for an appointment with HR because I, I just, I feel like I, I've, I've, in whatever role that I'm playing in the room, you know, like I said, most of the time I'm just on the staff, I'm, you know, producer level or whatever, uh, writer, that, um, that, at least I want to do whatever I can to foster the idea that this is a safe space. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the room at the top of the world. Nobody can touch us now. You know, we should be able to say things to each other. We're going to reveal things about ourselves because that's what we do as writers is we're going to tell a personal story and then we're going to try to use that for a character in the show and whatever. And, uh, and also just like, you know, that there has to be some back and forth. You know, I, when I worked on Seis Manos, th that show... You know, I was technically the showrunner of that show, but it was just me and another writer. You know, so I was an EP and he was a co-EP, but it was us in the room together. And people would come to the room and like, "Are you guys okay? Because it looks like you're going to kill each other." And I'm like, "No, we're fine. This is what we do." You know, right. it's like, "Yeah, I'm going to tell you that I don't like this, and I want you to tell me when you don't like this, and we're going to go back and forth because that's part of the process." You know, and that's obviously it's a lot easier to do when you know it's that. Right. much more intimate but still I think at the same time that's that's the sort of thing I would like to foster and I know that it's difficult and I know that there's a certain positionality that I have because I you know I, I don't feel possibly the same um, uh, things that other writers might feel in that situation where they would feel threatened if someone did that mm -hmm. or they would feel you know and not a, and there's ways of doing it that which can be threatening and can be right. you know aggressive or you know punitive or whatever that feel like it getting personal it's not about the story anymore right. but you're so, also you i mean you as a person uh, yeah. you, you're like you're such a gentle soul anyway and you're very articulate you, you would know? like me when i'm angry <laughs> i mean i think i'm just gonna say i just i just rub 
people the wrong way. <laughs> I'm just abrasive. I don't know. No, but I mean, but it's, it's like, but, you know, getting back to the idea, too, of like everybody has a different skill set, you know, if I had to be that person who was honestly like tracking whatever skills that I have, I'd hope that there are a couple of them. But one of them, I think, is like, you know, I may not be the captain of the ship, but I'm pretty good at making maps. Right. You know, and so you want to have a map maker on board who's going to tell you, this is this is where we should be going. This is how, and this is how we can get there. You know, let's think about. Oh, this is where we want to get by the end of the season. So, what's the route we need to take to get there? We can take little. I'm sorry. We can take little side quests and little off the path things. But this is the this is the track. You know, right. and there's something that, um, and that also allows for, you know, um, getting to one stop along the way and realizing that uh we may have made a misstep and so we're going to go back Mm -hmm. and whatever you know it's it's it seems very pedantic and simple but it's 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 an immutable truth that you have to make maps hi this is stephen kane if you're listening come get me help me get me out of this mess i don't know why i volunteered for this but i am a writer and a producer in television and that's why they asked me to come join them for the writer's room pros podcast and that's what you're listening to and i know you have said before that like you your career didn't really take off until you moved to la yeah until you came out to la which is understandable that was but that was the, that was the point of william goldman's thing you know he had the chapter called la yeah. and i think like i'm going to paraphrase but the, the chapter said like i find los angeles to be a dangerous and potentially very harmful place in which to live and i suggest that anyone seriously considering a career as a screenwriter move there as soon as possible you know, you know I read that as a 24-year-old. I went, okay. <laughs> you know, left Brooklyn and moved out to LA. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 still kind of true, and and um, you know, it was a step, you know, two steps forward, one step back kind of process mm-hmm. for me. You know, I I did, I was living out here part time when I was writing on Dustful mm-hmm. Dawn, and then I was, you know, kind of back and forth Texas. And yeah, I remember you went back to yeah. Texas for a bit. And, uh, but, you know, I officially moved to L.A. I've been here since New Year's Eve on going into 2017. Mm-hmm. And, you know, wrote a pilot that got me staffed on Chicago Fire, and, you know, and has gotten me, I was on American Rust because of that pilot, mm-hmm. and, and on uh, Florida Man for Netflix. And that okay, pilot. cool. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and in the meantime, you know, did a feature, uh, indie feature, um, Seis Manos, so Seis Manos to Netflix. And so it's, you know, it, it's, but I, every time I was here, like good things were happening. And it's like, right. okay, good things happen. It's an industry you get town. Boots on the ground. Right. So right. I need to get roots in the ground and yeah. just stay here. And yeah. so I, I've been really fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, what are you watching now that you, that you really like? Oy, um, that's always the question. I'll tell you what I. Just Tell me where you and and only because there's a, we have a, like a like a you know twenty seven degrees of you know, separation, separation yeah you know on it because you work with Robert Patrick and mm-hmm. um and Peacemaker Peacemaker love Peacemaker I have heard great things about Peacemaker I have yet to to click play on that yeah. one but I need to watch it because it looks really great I was actually watching on it's, Amazon it's... Reacher the other night I saw the first episode of Reacher which mm-hmm. I thought was really good and yeah. just a very you know. Um, but no, I need to see Peacemaker. What was the thing that I just saw? I, mean, I always blank I know. when I get that question. Well, there's so much TV. There is so much TV, and you know, uh, like I end up, uh, I end up, you know, watching old movies a lot of the time when I just like want to. Right. But then there's like I'll 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 turn something on and I'll you know I'll get swept up in it and I'll right. just binge the whole thing. Earlier in the conversation, you 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 know, you seem to kind of indicate that you know I don't know what the exact terms with like arguably you know the you know uh or oh you said i think for better for worse is you know a lot of writing and television now but oh yeah yeah but to me it feels like like tv like if if i had known then then being like you know late 80s yeah um what i know now i never would have touched a feature i would have just completely focused on television but then then we wouldn't have had bloodsport too we would not have had Bloodsport 2, <laughs> for better or for worse. It's all about the Kimite, baby. You know what? Uh, thank you for uh, remembering that. <laughs> Bloodsport 2, Bloodsport 2, 
inevitably comes up in, in my conversation when I'm doing like these interviews as either I bring it up as a joke or somebody else brings it up as a joke. I wasn't bringing it up as a joke. I, can, I was sensing jokish. No. Jokishness. No, yeah. because you know, how, like, you know how many manos there were in, <laughs> in Bloodsport 2? At least two. <laughs> At least two. Um, Bloodsport 1 only had one mono. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, it's like, but that's, there's something that, it's like we, we all kind of start somewhere. And right. oftentimes, you know, genre action horror is like a place where people get their start. And then, and they're formative experiences. Yeah, no, I learned, I learned a ton on just writing Bloodsport. Matter of fact, writing Bloodsport 2 is what turned me on to structure in the first place. See? It's a, I, 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 um, so I got the gig to write Bloodsport 2, which is a, you know, a great story in and of itself, which I will not tell. But, um, but anyway, uh, so I get the job and I said, okay, well, let me, because this would, would have been like the first like super like action thing. I was doing science fiction and right. horror. So this would have been like the first like straight up action. So I said, okay, well, what are the big action movies at that time? Let me just do like a beat sheet for them so I can kind of try to learn a little bit more about action structure. Um, so I did uh, 48 Hours and Lethal Weapon. So I'm doing 48 Hours and I'm writing down every time like something new happens, like a new event or yeah. bit of information, something I didn't know before. Right, it's not, so it wasn't a scene by scene, it was like beats, beat by beat. Beat yeah. by beat. Um, and I did, wrote it all down and had 44 of them, like in Lethal Weapon. And then I go to 48 hours and I do 48 hours. And, uh, and I, it was 44 again, I'm going, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this is a magic number. What's going on here? And, yeah. and, then, and then I started doing other ones, I forget which ones I did, but it was like 46, 43, it was all like in and around 44. Right. And then it's like, okay, well, do these 44 have a, rhythm to them and so and that was the start of my whole journey as a, as a structuralist you know i mean but that's you know that there's something that's great when it's kind of that learning by doing and and you know kind of like up, applying that method to like f figuring it out you yeah. know i always talked about um save the cat you know and and the beat sheets that they get um generated like here's the beat sheet for mm -hmm. coda or here's the beat sheet for um power of the dog or whatever and it's like that whole process uh it's almost like an autopsy you know it's like the naming of, of the organs after the right. thing is already right. expired it's a it's a thing and then you try to take those things and make a new golem you know or whatever make your own uh yeah. creature and it's alive it's alive and there's something that but but we can learn from that right and there's, and there's a well you know what's really interesting to me uh, that what when because i do that all the time also um, but that, that post-mortem, post-mortem that you're doing, um, on it is based on the finished film. Right. As compared to either the, what's, what's the script that got sold? Right. Because that has its own secret lessons in there also. Why was this sold? Right. Right. Like every, every, you know, cruddy movie out there, somebody bought it. So what was it? Sometimes it's for convenience. I mean, I think famously... Yeah. They wanted Kelsey Grammer to do um, another, like a final season of Frasier. So they greenlit uh, Up Periscope or Down Periscope. Oh, it was right. like whatever the submarine movie yeah, was yeah, that yeah. he did as a way of having him do that. So it's like, it had nothing to do with the quality of the script. It's but he wanted to do it and it's like, okay, we'll do that. Right. But but other scripts that kind of come out of nowhere and get sold, you go, okay, what's what's the lesson of how did that get sold? But when, we, when you try to say, what's the lesson of the storytelling, you're seeing so many... Like, well, we can't, you know, here's, here's my, here's the script that got sold. This is now my shooting script. So that's already different. Yeah. And then it's like, okay, we're not going to make our day. We have to cut some scenes. Okay, well, we, we can cut this and this, you know, like, this, you know, like rewriting decisions are happening on the floor. Sure. And then it gets handed off to the editor and the editor is like rearranging things. The editor is rewriting, yep. right? That's going to be one of the uh, interviews we're going to be doing is with an editor to talk about story structure and editing. Yeah. And, um, you know, so and then and then, you know, gearheads like you and I show up afterwards and say, OK, now that we've got the finished film, what are the story? But, we're, we, you know, we're, we're missing that whole chain of events that right. that's that settled on that. this story, which which is why this is such or technically should be the best possible version of all these stories. Because right. it doesn't have the fluff and they realize, oh, OK, yeah, we spent time shooting that, but do we really need it? Right. No, it's true. It's true. And I, that, I think that's also an interesting element. Like years ago, I met David Peoples, who, you know, wrote mm -hmm. um, Blade Runner and Unforgiven and Twelve Monkeys and, um, you know, much stuff. And, and 
had some really great conversations with him and you know it's like he's someone who started as an editor mm -hmm. and so I think that when you find people who are writers who came from different you know different backgrounds right. in in the you know in the field directors actors or editors or whatever they have like an entirely different kind of conception of storytelling you know it's like he's already made the cuts in his head so many times right. that he's going to write something that's much more concise and you know famously you know he wrote unforgiven back in the early 70s and it had gone through rewrites from different people or whatever and then you know clint ended up making the, the 74 script with i think one scene changed or wow. something like that um and so you know there's something that's really interesting to me about about that and kind of like what can i do to you know think about in whatever small way the editing process even right. as i'm writing yeah well, i started off my my career was started off in editing I was uh, went out of college. My first job was a, as an apprentice sound editor on a uh, Roy Scheider Mer Meryl Streep movie. Still of the Night. Still of the Night. Nicely done. Directed by Robert Benton. Um, and, um, and I just learned a ton about, of course, they, there was, there was um, uh, I'm hesitating because I don't want to be disrespectful. There were script problems that, that didn't get addressed um, because it kind of fell into that trap. You know, Robert Benton was kind of fresh off of Kramer versus Kramer, and um, and he wrote the script as well as directed it. So the, the, you know you you lose some element of checks and balances, yeah. you know, with that. Um, don't tell Quentin I said that. Um, but um, the um, but there were problems, and you know, and I remember. You know, the Jerry Greenberg, you know, the, the great editor, Jerry Greenberg was the editor on it, and Eddie Beyer was the sound editor, and um, um, just the, the conversations and the hair pulling about the, how do we restructure this and let's reshoot, we actually need this scene, and, and just saying, wow, that's really interesting. That was like my first professional experience going, yeah, you know what, it's like sometimes you miss it. You know, and if you're lucky, you know, if you're doing a Roy Scheider Meryl Streep movie in the early 80s, you can go and reshoot some stuff. Yeah. Right? You know? Yeah. And you miss some shots that, that tell the story, you know, and so let's go out and, you know, and get that, that close-up of the, the newspaper headline that somehow, you know, four months ago we didn't grab right, on right, the right. day. Right. Uh, yeah. But yeah, yeah there's a, a ton. I, I always thought that editing, if, if, if you had to pick one thing for a writer to um, to also study to help the writing. Number one would be editing, and then I think because I'm a structuralist, as you as you may have noticed, because yeah. so so number one would be editing because that's storytelling, and then number two would be acting. Take acting classes. Yeah. Right. Have you ever done any? Acting no, classes? I mean I, it was interesting. I was recently um, speaking to someone who's an actor and who teaches acting and. And you know, I expressed an interest. I expressed an interest in like you know wanting to study a little bit because I you know mm -hmm. I couldn't tell you Meisner from Strasberg from <laughs> you know uh, Stanislavski or whatever. And I was just there was something that was really interesting to me about that because especially after being on the set of um, American Rust, you know, I was on set for a couple of months uh, during production and just you know spending time watching. The actors who had you know inhabited these roles for you know a few months mm -hmm. now and and they they just have like a there's something interesting to me about that uh, having that intimate understanding of character and inhabiting a scene from the inside mm -hmm. that I think sometimes you know as a writer you know the the you either have a distance to or, or a different kind of perspective on yeah and so uh, yeah I think it's it's an invaluable thing it's something I definitely want to explore more right I think that's that, that as a writer that was the absolute hardest thing for me emotionally was was taking like handing off a script where I, I felt it so intimately what was happening in the script to an actor uh, to have to have her you know now bring it to life but more often than not it did not match the life that I had I, you know, I had brought it to in my own head, right. and you have to figure out how to be okay with that, and, and not just okay with it, because that sounds like, okay, uh, you can do what you want, you know, it's not that. Yeah. It's more like, oh, okay, there's, there, there are human beings involved in this process, and they're bringing their own 
innate sense of storytelling to it. Maybe they don't think about structure as much as I do, but I also perhaps don't think about how do you inhabit a character as much as they do, and you have to be willing to collaborate on that. Absolutely. You know, I always say it's like this most collaborative art form that there is. Mm -hmm. And so, and, and I think that there's something, at least, you know, maybe I'm naive, maybe I'm inexperienced, but it's like, I really like hearing what the actors have to say about, you know, character mm -hmm. and the scene or whatever. And, and um, I just, I respect that opinion. And, um, and yeah, I mean, th th there's, I've had that experience too, where you know, you write something, you've lived with it so long that it was just the voices in your head, and then suddenly, you know, mm -hmm. there's actors that are bringing it to life in ways that you didn't even anticipate, and those are like, you know, joyful epiphanies, you know, that it's like, wow, it's okay. like that really takes it there. Or working with a director and realizing like, you know in the interest of time or just like a restructuring that has to happen on the set we're going to do we're going to change some action here or do things in a different order and you're like well but that kind of like defeats what the intention of the scene was and then you realize oh no this is better this is mm -hmm. you know this, so there's like all, all of that kind of right. stuff i think is really good nice good experience alvaro is there anything i haven't asked you that i should have i don't know you know i, I will say that um I, uh, I have done workshops on screenwriting, uh, on particularly on structure and stuff like that. To, uh, I've been a guest lecturer in screenwriting courses from NYU to like University of Northern Colorado to Austin, um, Arizona. And um, one, uh, one person who had taken my workshop a few years ago um, is uh, working on his MFA and he's teaching writing um, in Arizona at um, the Scottsdale Film School and also at Arizona State. And when I did my structure thing, you know, where I talked about the beats, I also brought in the four archetypes. Mm -hmm. And so he uses that when he That's teaches great. his class. So the, the orphan, wanderer, warrior, martyr right. motifs. Right continue yeah. to be passed on to the young right. For those who don't know, that's, that's, a, that's a fundamental principle from you know, a story structure book that I wrote. You yeah. know, My story ago. can beat up your My story. My story can beat up your story. Because right. it has diez manos. <laughs> well, shake my uno mano. And Alvaro, thank you so much for coming in, man. It's so great to, you, uh, to, just to just to be with you, you know, great after all these years. Too. Yeah. Thanks. A big thank you to Alvaro for joining us. Make sure you tune in next week for our interview with TV writer, screenwriter, and executive producer, Martin Garrow.